Hi, I'm Lucas. And I'm Brian. And this is the Quacks Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. I have an interview for you today with Dr. Leland Stillman. So I found him on Twitter posting some really interesting information on light, EMF, and uh, cold therapy. Now, unlike Brian and I, who are uh, quack doctors, he's an actual MD with a variety of experiences in hospitals uh, and in a practice out of Virginia. So he has some interesting things to say about the medical system as a whole. And stay tuned through the end where I have some important information and an announcement. Enjoy the interview. Dr. Leland Stillman, thanks for being on the show, man. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing very well today. Uh, kind of getting a little stir crazy with being in the house so much, but uh, other than that, doing all right. Are you quarantining yourself or uh, still working? Right. So the deal is, I. Uh, so for people who don't know, uh, which I assume is most people, uh, I moved to Virginia for a new job to start a clinic, but uh, I decided to take some traveling work where, while I built up um, my patient base because, uh, you know, starting from scratch, uh, you know, it just takes some time to get some people coming to see you. And so I took a traveling job up in Minnesota and I have been flying up here every other week. And when this thing hit, I was here and it became clear that if I flew anywhere, I was likely to get it. And then if you get it, you can't work. And on top of that, you know, we're supposed to not have anybody coming to see us at the clinic anyway. So I figured, and they were asking me here, they said, hey, we don't know how much we're going to sort of how much work we're going to have. Because especially out here, I'm at what's called the critical access hospital. And there's like four doctors who can staff it. Hmm. And um and basically, if any of us get sick, we're down, and we don't know what, what the demand is going to be. So I'm here basically until the pandemic is over or the end is in sight or something, which is a little bit crazy, but um, it's also exciting, and I'm trying to use my time as best I can. And I'm working uh about ha- about fifty percent of the of the time. So let's let's start off with what you do and kind of your background. Sure. So I am a general internist, which basically means I specialize in sick adults. And uh, technically, I see patients ages four and up. And I became a doctor because really, I was a uh, patient looking to get well. Uh, I started life, I was born in Manhattan, which has a pretty gnarly environment for those who don't know. Mm-hmm. And I you know, came down as a kid with ear infections and sinus issues and um, was pretty unhappy, sick baby. And then as I got to be older, um, I started to have some food sensitivities and, and a lot of the things that I now, I take care of a lot of people who have um, ADHD, all that kind of stuff. And then uh, I, as a teenager was really, my mother bailed on the whole conventional medical bandwagon because she she tells this great story where she's my sister had issues with her sinuses and she had to go in for a sinus surgery and any surgery for a little kid is a big deal right and yeah. so my mom's like holding my my sister in her arms as she's vomiting into the emesis basin and she looks up at the ENT doc who's come into the room to talk to her, talk to her about the, the success of the operation and she says well this is it right we've cured the problem we don't have to do this again and he says 
oh no, it's likely that her sinuses will heal up and we'll have to go back in and operate again. And she at that moment had this epiphany where she said, okay, we're going to try a different route. And over the next basically 10 or 15 years that I lived at home, um, and you know, I mean, when I became a teenager, I wanted less and less to do with what my parents thought I ought to do. But, you know, during my childhood, we, we, we went to everybody. We went to like craniosacral therapists and homeopaths and we did aromatherapy and we did, I mean, like this and that. I mean, I even remember, I just, there's so much. Like I went, we did like coining and cupping, which is pretty far out there. Yeah. Um, especially for where we sort of like came from as, you know, very um, like, I don't know, sort of typical suburbanites in uh, modern America. Uh, my parents were not some like patchouli smoking, robe toting, turban wearing hippies. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, I got exposed to all this and a lot of it was way too far out there for me and still is. But I, I, I attached to a sort of mentor in my teens who was a naturopath. And, um, to this day, I'm, I'm in touch with him but we have many differences of opinion because he's too far out there on a lot of things. But, you know, I noticed that he, he had all these really great ideas that worked for me and they worked for other people and they didn't require you to go to a doctor and get a prescription and go through this whole crazy rigmarole of, of where you pay all this money and you often don't get a very good result. And so I was really impressed by that. And he told me that I ought to go to medical school and I just said, okay, great. So I did. Um, and uh, then I went into internal medicine because um, I thought I wanted to specialize in uh, the field of allergy and immunology, which is basically the immune system. And uh, but I got very um, disillusioned with the way medicine was as a in, in just the whole way that it's the, the sausage is made is really, I mean, horrible. Um, I mean, really horrible. Like, what do you mean? And people. um Everything is about moving the patients through the assembly line. Everything is about maximizing the profits and minimizing the actual amount of meaningful work done for the patient. And a lot of people will say that, you know, it's the standard of care or this is the best system or these are the guidelines or whatever, but they're ignoring the fact that all of this, this doesn't take place in a vacuum. Things like appointment times matter. So let me um, like basically give you an example. The more time I have with a patient, the more thorough my physical exam and my history can be, and the less I will rely on diagnostic testing and imaging. And the shorter that period of time, the less confident I am in those things and the less time I have for them. And then I add more testing and imaging in order to hedge against um, things the patient may have. And that's where all this whole like unnecessary testing thing starts to steamroll. But what you got to understand is the doctors are not in charge of how many minutes they get with each patient. That's based on reimbursement, which is based on insurance companies. And for people who don't know, insurance companies are a cartel. I mean, the fact that I can get health and that I can get car insurance, homeowners insurance, boaters insurance, renters insurance, flood insurance from more people than I can get health insurance from is a really clear indication that the game is rigged because 
everybody's got a life and everybody's got health. Not everybody owns a boat. Some people don't even own a car. And yet somehow I have more people selling me those things than health insurance. So the payers are basically, and the way the health insurance game is rigged is they're maximizing the cost to you so that they can maximize your premium because they make their money on the margin. So the more money gets spent in the, this is sort of like blows people's minds when they think about it, but because they all control the system, they can say, we say to each other, oh, hey, you know, if we, and I mean, it's a really small world. Like this is how cartels work, um, periods, like economics 101. If they say, all right, we're going to get everybody's premiums higher this year. That, and, you know, sure, we may, we're going to compete sort of on the little things, but we're going to make sure that healthcare stays really expensive. So the premiums are really big. And that way our percentage of profits is bigger. I tell people that if you would let me start a health insurance company, you know, that I could completely create without any kind of government interference or regulation, I would offer people health insurance for less than they currently insure their cars because they're currently insured for stuff that's either never going to happen that, or even stuff that they don't even want. I mean, some of the stuff we can do to people, it's like you don't want it and you don't get why you don't want it. But if someone sat down and educated people and explained to them why they don't want it up front, then people would be like, wait, I've been paying for this all along and I didn't even want it. This is crazy. So are you, are you kind of talking about, uh, you know, being insured for pregnancy when you're a man or something like that? Or is there a better example? No, yeah, there's a much better example. So like when people get cancer and, you know, cancer is a top, I think it's the second most common cause of death now. Um, basically, the, the game plan is, and this is obviously for conventional folks, you know, um, who want to go to the regular doctor and do the regular thing. And that the alternative side of this is a whole other story. Um, the game plan is go see the doctor, talk to the doctor, get it staged. That's where we figure out where the cancer is, how much of it there is, whether or not we have a surgical approach or whether or not we need to include chemo and radiation. All right. Then the question is, once you've got that figured out and you've spent, you know, that, that workup is thousands of dollars because you need CT scans or MRIs or PETs or whatever. And then there's doctor's time and this and that and the other thing, right? But it's not that much money. Here's where it gets expensive is the chemo. So chemo is like tens of thousands of dollars. Hmm. And if people have noticed that people should watch the shifts in pharmaceutical drug advertising because it's a really important clue as to which direction society is headed. So right now there's like three big things on pharmaceutical advertising that blow my mind. One is erectile dysfunction drugs being marketed to young men with this incredible lie that it's normal to have performance problems as a young man. That's crazy. That blows my mind and it tells you just how how incredibly unhealthy the average American man is at this point in history. Um, which we can talk about why that is later if you want. Sure. Um, two is the marketing of autoimmune or immune modulating and suppressing drugs to young people, particularly young women, because they deal with autoimmune conditions more than men. This is an indication that young women are also falling apart, but with a completely different set of issues. And the sad thing is, is that I know all these issues are because of their high-paced, high-stress lifestyle, and they're marketing these drugs to the women who are successful professionals who need the drugs in order to, you know, keep the boyfriend and get the job and be able to keep functioning at work and whatever, um, or to, you know, sustain a pregnancy or whatever. And the thing that blows my mind about that is 
like a lot of these autoimmune conditions, when you get out into the alternative world, people manage them with things like elimination diets or just changing their, you know, their locale or their daily routine or, or a hundred other different things that people can do naturally. When you compare them cost, you know, cost wise, it's absolutely amazing how much money could be saved if we managed autoimmune conditions naturally. And then the third one, um, is these new immunomodulating chemotherapy drugs. These are awesome drugs um, in that they work very well, but they're also very, very, very expensive. I mean, we're talking like you could send multiple kids to college for one course of some of these chemos. Wow. Now, yeah, I mean, really expensive. So, so how does that tie back into the insurance, like insuring you for things that you don't need? Right. So chemo... Basically, the way it works is your best shot at survival is up front. They give you the best drugs, and if you get better, then great, right? The people who fail the first-line chemotherapy go to the second line, and then there's a third line, and there's a fourth line, and then there's a fifth line. Now, when you're getting down to that third, fourth, fifth line, your odds of survival keep dropping. And, you know, it's very typical for us to see in the last six months of life we sort of throw everything at somebody, but you're basically spending like, let's say that somebody somebody has like half a million dollars spent on their healthcare in the last six months of life, but we all know, the doctors, the nurses, the people who are in a position to really prognosticate based on experience, numbers, et cetera, we all know that the half a million dollars is basically got a snowball's chance in hell to get that patient better. And then the question really needs to be, you know, should we be spending this money this way? Now, that's a really complicated question when it comes to something like Medicare or Medicaid, because it's not our money, it's the state's money. So whose money is it, right? When it comes to private insurance, you've already paid for it. But here's the thing, there's no box that you can check on your private insurance that says, hey, I'd like to not sign up for fourth line, fifth line chemotherapy and not have to spend an extra 50 bucks a month. And these are all these like hidden costs that get bundled into this whole thing. And, you know, like I look at these signs that say free flu shots. Well, baloney, they're not free. You paid for it. Like they're not giving it away. Vaccines are one of the biggest money makers for the pharmaceutical industry in the history of the world. Like you think <laughs> they're giving it away? No, you already paid for it, right? And the irony about that is like the flu shot doesn't work that well. So you know, we really might make an argument that we're better off, say, buying all the hungry kids in America healthy, nutritious food than we are paying for everyone to get a flu shot. Um, and, you know, this goes down the line of all the chronic diseases. I mean, the last six months, and, you know, I have a lot of, at least for my age, I have a lot of experience with this because I've been a hospitalist since I left training and I did most of my training in a hospital specializing in people at the at the very ends of, or the most, like the sickest physiology, you know, the people who are in the ICU have heart disease, who have cancer, who have overwhelming infections, whatever. And I've done this in, uh, I've been traveling a lot for the last three years because quite frankly, it's kind of hard to beat as a deal. They pay for your housing, your car, your travel, you get to see the country, you get to like work whatever hours you want, nice. you want to take three months off, fine. You want to, you know, work like a dog for six months and like, come out ahead. Great. Um, but, and you know, then you, you just see such an amazing diversity of how different systems work and what different hospitals are like. 
But I mean, I'm telling people really like maybe 50% of the cost of what we spend on healthcare in this country, you know, if people understood what they were buying, if you could, if you could break it down and basically look at it like, okay, I'm buying this piece over here and that piece over there. And if someone could walk you through it, we could save an incalculable amount of money on our healthcare. And no one wants this to happen in the Washington DC beltway. I mean, Hmm. if you think about it, like why on earth is health insurance even tied to your employer? Like your car insurance isn't, your boat insurance isn't, your homeowner's insurance isn't. And here's the other thing that grinds my gears is that if you look at it, right, (laughs) you don't have car damage insurance. And feel free to stop me because I'm like on a rant right yeah, now. Yeah, no, go for I it, man. We'll, we'll get back on so track. It's so important for people to get because they just don't see how big the scam is. And it's like hard to believe when you really come to grips with it. But you don't have car damage insurance and car like destruction insurance. You don't have home destruction insurance and home damage insurance. You have homeowner's insurance and you have car insurance, right? But you have health insurance and then you have life insurance. And let me explain to you what I want. This isn't like, here's what I think all of you should have. This is like my dream. I want to have health and life insurance together. And what I want to do is pay for my own care out of pocket. And what I'm going to do is spend my money on wholesome, nutritious, real food that was grown in my zip code. I'm going to spend it on cool hobbies like fishing and hunting. So I'm getting really fresh, really real wild game and fish. I'm going to spend it on cool vacations to do fun and exciting things outdoors like free diving in Thailand or hiking in Hawaii or whatever. And um, that's I'm going to spend my money. And then I'm going to put my money for my health insurance and life insurance into that policy week after week, month after month, year after year, and never touch it. Like never. And over time, that will snowball. And then you will have a health life insurance policy. Then, like everybody, I end up with some diagnosis. I have heart disease. I have cancer. I need to be hospitalized. I need this. I need that. Let's say I need a million dollars worth of care. Well, if you look at what the average person can afford in terms of a whole life insurance policy, like if it pays out, you know, they're buying it for their whole life, right? Yeah. They can afford the payments on a pretty massive policy. And think about it. If you did this, you could say, all right, you're telling me I've got stage four cancer. You, I could spend $200,000 on chemotherapy and I have a 50% chance of living another six weeks and a 25% chance of living only two extra weeks and uh, so, uh, another 25% chance of living an extra eight weeks. And uh, you're telling me I can either spend my money that is in this policy on my health or I can choose to let it go and assign it to whoever I will. And that's what I want because if you look at what that would do, like the baby boomers, you know, if you ask them what's happening with Medicare and Medicaid, they all get it. The country's being bankrupted, paying for them at the end of their lives. And they're not happy about that because if you explain it to them, they realize the value of the dollar is going down, take home pay is going down, cost of living is rising. And their kids and their grandkids are never going to get Medicare or Medicaid because it does, it's not going to be economically feasible. And none of them want to bankrupt the country to get their health care. But none of them 
have an option, right? Exactly. Let, let me just cut you off because I have a sure. feeling we could go down so many rabbit holes. You know, I, I would could, I would love to talk about all of these things with you for four hours. But but let's let's yeah. try and just talk about. Uh, you know, you mentioned a lot of conditions. Do you specialize in in treating any of those conditions? I specialize in helping people who've been failed by the conventional medical paradigm. And I actually, it's funny, I decided I was going to start making more videos on these today. And so I wrote down a list of all the things that I love taking care of, which are the things that drive other doctors crazy because conventional therapies don't work well for them. And they are allergies, autoimmune diseases, hypothyroidism, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, depression, anxiety, insomnia, headaches, joint pain, chronic Lyme disease, and mold toxicity. And, um, Frankly, a lot of these, from my perspective, all of these are illnesses that have to do with diet, lifestyle, and the environment. And that's why, you know, pills, surgeries, you know, doctor's visits, they just don't work for these people. And that's why, um, and I feel really called to help these folks because there is hope. There is, op- there are options for treating it. And, you know, as, as you guys know, a lot of people with these issues end up trying to sort of reinvent their health by listening to podcasts like this and trying to figure out, well, what's actually making me sick? Because a much better solution than adding a pill into someone's life is taking away something that's making them sick. Yeah, that's actually a a principle, I think, from Taleb, uh, who's kind of the inspiration for this podcast uh, i can't remember oh cool i can't remember what it's called it's something negativa which is via negativa via negativa that's via, it yeah we're via ne- negativa yeah yep. you, you cure yep. by taking away and there's much higher probability that that will work versus adding something absolutely and it's so pragmatic and um ignoring that principle is what drives a lot of the profit in healthcare. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So you mentioned one thing, uh, environment. And I know you've done a ton of work on this. You have videos out all Mm -hmm. the time on light and stuff like that. But one of the things we haven't talked about in quite a while on this podcast is EMF. And I think I think we did three episodes, maybe like a year ago or something like that. But yeah, you've kind of taken an interest in EMF and wireless technologies for yourself and your patients. So what have you found learning about EMF? Great question. Uh, So first of all, let's define EMF, because this is a really this is where it all sort of gets very sticky, shall we say, right? I like to always tell people, right, E equals MC squared, energy equals mass times the uh, speed of light mm-hmm. squared, mm-hmm. Einstein's famous relativity equation. What does that really mean, though, right? It means that light, it can be transmuted into matter, and matter can be transmuted into light through a variety of processes. And most of the information in the health and wellness sphere focuses on the matter, because you can make a lot of money selling people matter. Um, and I basically fell into that camp for most of my career um, because those people have a lot of marketing dollars, they have a lot of time, and a lot of it works. I'm not trying to gainsay the importance of matter. Um, obviously, matter is very important. It's very material to getting well. But it's not the whole equation. And I became interested in EMF when, and for people who want to sort of see a longer story of this, I put a, I think there's a a video on my YouTube channel that says, it's like my journey from skeptic to basically, you know, concerned citizen. Oh, that's interesting. I'll put that in the show notes. Yeah. So basically what I, I I worked very briefly after residency, that's my training, uh, for a functional medicine doctor who specialized in, um, really like the sickest patients who had already tried all of the 
paleo and this and that and the other thing. And it was very intense. We did a lot of testing. It was very expensive. You know, we had like movie stars and we had professional athletes in and out of the clinic. It was mm. a really cool, cool place. But I was very frustrated by the fact that that I was frustrated by a lot of things. But one of the things that I was most disturbed by was the pattern that I saw where some of our patients didn't get better. And I don't have a problem with, say, you know, every procedure, every treatment has a failure rate. Um, you know, they'll tell you that if you're whether you're going for a heart catheterization or someone's going to, you know, give you ozone therapy. Um, but, you know, I don't think that people really, a lot of people are mis, are misconveying the success they have with their patients. And it really bothers me when somebody will have a patient spend, say, like a hundred grand on medical care. Or like, I just heard about some Lyme doc in Virginia who's charging people like $65,000 up front before treating them. Wow. And you know, if you're going to do that, you need to be very transparent with your numbers on your failure rate. And in conventional medicine, you know, you have to give them their due. They publish the failure rates for different procedures in different places. And the hospitals and clinics know what the failure rates are because they have to deal with the arbitrage of, you know, malpractice suits and whatever. And if your numbers aren't good enough, then guess what? You shouldn't be doing that surgery. Sure. That's not to say there's not people abusing that, but you know, they're going to give you the numbers and you can look them up for yourself. And what I got frustrated by is that everyone in the sort of alternative medical space has got this kind of like, everything is fine. Everything is great. This is always better than conventional medicine. And that's just not true because I saw all these patients who were doing everything right that I knew how to do right, that I'd been studying since I read Linus Pauling and I read Mark Hyman and I read Amy Myers and I read Sarah Gottlieb. I read all these people who are great in what they do, but they're missing a huge portion of medicine. And if E equals MC squared is, you know, a two-sided equation with an equal sign in the middle, they're missing the energy side. And so that's light and electric and magnetic fields. And these things are not easy to dis to dissociate from one another because, you know, the electricity running through a wire in your house sets up a magnetic field around it. And then if that interacts with, say, I'm sitting next to a a baseboard electric heater that's next to a wire, those two things can interact and then create more electric and more magnetic fields. And it can become an EMF nightmare where you have all these different forces in nature. And in nature, the only significant electromagnetic forces are animals, which create electricity in their mitochondria and through their nervous systems and their tissues. Um, plants, to a certain extent, uh, lightning, and then the electromagnetic force of the planet, which is generated by the circulation of the metals in at the center of the earth, because they're hot and they undergo convection. So all of that is a fancy way of saying electromagnetism, which is electrical and magnetic fields, and then light, which is really a manifestation or, or another incarnation of electromagnetism, uh, is an integral part of our environment. And when you ignore it, you're ignoring a significant amount of life's activity. And we know that, and I basically tr try and make it simple for people. I just explain, look, you're worried about fake food, and we know that fake food makes people sick. No one can deny that. Uh, well, fake light makes people sick too, uh, by the same sort of logic. And what I realized in these functional medicine, you know, sort of case failures that I was seeing 
They tended to be very young, very tech-addicted people, especially from certain zip codes, uh, which I later came to find out were zip codes that were particularly, let's just say, EMF toxic, where they had a lot of extra, you know, non-native, unnatural, fake electromagnetic uh, energy in the airwaves, whether it was the amount of, you know, tech gadgetry emitting microwave radiation or the number of cell towers or the amount of electricity and voltage through their, their, um, their appliances and their heating and cooling systems and whatever. And that just got me on, it sort of tipped me down a rabbit hole where I, I started reading for two or three years straight on how light really shapes life and trying to figure out what I needed to know to get my patients better, especially the ones who'd failed doing everything else that I had learned in the functional medicine paleo space. Hmm. So how, how bad is this fake light or these, these EMF things for you? That is a very difficult question to answer because it has to do with risk. So like, you know, and, and this has to do too with sort of the acceleration of, or like the manifestation of disease, right? So, um, let's say that, you know, a hundred people live in the same EMF polluted environment, uh, for a hundred years, um, a certain like number of them are going to get extra diagnoses, whether it's ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease or brain cancer or psoriasis or whatever. And let's say we attribute it to the EMF, right? But if you didn't get that and you didn't visibly see any, any detriment to your health, then you assume it's not a problem, right? It's the same way. Like a lot of people smoked, but never had any ill health outcomes from it. Mm. Right. So then how much harm is it really doing? And, um, when people ask me sort of like how seriously should they take it? My real question to them is, well, what's it worth to you? Because the simple reality is that I see a lot of people in this, this dangerous situation and a lot of them wind up eating well and exercising and they think they're doing it all right, but they're living what I call the microwave blue lit life where they play a lot of video games or they're constantly on the phone or they're constantly playing some whatever uh, game on their laptop, computer, tablet, I don't care. And they're on Wi-Fi all the time being illuminated by really intense, brightly lit screens. And they don't realize that that's actually ruining their quality of life. I mean, look at all these studies that show increased use of social media with depression. At the end of the day, what's happening is that, and I always tell people this, when you get something for free, you are the product. And so what's the product of Facebook? It's your eyeballs and it's your brain being programmed with a, what they want you to think and what they want you to think is important. So when I get down to it with my patients, I really focus with them because they're all very resistant to a lot of the things that I tell them to do. They don't want to wear you know, these funny looking red colored glasses at night or they don't want to install new software on their phone or they don't want to buy a red light or they don't want to do all this stuff because it's easier to take a pill. But here's the thing. I talk to them and I'm like, hey, what do you really want out of life? And if the answer is I want to live a long time, I want to have a rewarding career, I want to have some reasonably healthy offspring, I want to you know, be able to raise them myself, I want to have meaningful relationships with other people, guess how many of those things require you to use wireless technology and fake light? Zero. And so <laughs> as people accumulate this stuff into their life, they think it's fun and they think it's great 
and they don't realize they're addicted to it. You know, it's not that different, honestly, from the people who are smoking cigarettes or chewing tobacco. And I explain to people that, you know, in many respects, these things are all, um, they are, they're tools for us to use. Uh, nicotine is a great example. So I've, I'm very interested in the fact that three celebrities that I can think of who've, who've done very well um, have used nicotine gum. One of them is Chris Kyle, who's deceased, but he is the most successful, uh, that's kind of a loaded term in this context, but uh, the most deadly, let's say, sniper in U.S. history. He used nicotine um, in the form of chewing tobacco for his entire career. Nicotine can be a powerful performance enhancer in terms of your neuromuscular system. So that's a really great asset, potentially, if you're like a sniper like he was. Two is Tucker Carlson, who's a late-night talk show host. And people who watch his show have to realize the guy makes his living by being quick and witty and funny and tearing people down. And the faster your brain works, the better you're going to do that. And nicotine turns on the prefrontal cortex and helps people do that better. A lot of people use it um, that way. And the third is Barack Obama, right? He had one of the most high-stress jobs on planet Earth, right? And people loved his his rhetoric and his way of speaking, right? Do you think it? Do you think maybe he knew something about? Um, and I, I, as far, I know, I know that Chris Chris uh, Kyle and I know that um, Tucker Carlson used it. I have heard that Obama used it. But my point is simply that, you know, you can use these performance enhancers, but you've got to realize there may be a risk. And a lot of the risk depends on the delivery, right? Like nicotine gum, I don't think is that bad. Yeah, it's very low risk. Yeah, I'll use nicotine gum or I'll use like a nicotine tablet if I want a performance uh, boost. I have a friend who plays volleyball. He does the same thing. Uh, but I don't abuse it. And, um, you know, we know that that's highly intense screens can change your performance. Like, for example, if somebody who was doing transatlantic flights told me they wanted to use blue blockers while they were on the job, I would tell them they should not because that would not be responsible. The, the user interfaces of planes are loaded with blue and green light to keep the pilots awake. Hmm. So it's really about, you know, you got to think, okay, these are not just things that I can recklessly indulge in. The idea that a, a cell phone or a computer, a wireless router is, is not in some way affecting your biology. And even leaving aside, a lot of people are skeptical of my claims that radio and microwave radiation harm them, but I need them to think about it in terms of how it alters their behavior. Like here's an example. People will have stopped using their GPS or sorry, they've stopped using their inborn GPS and they're using their phone's GPS. And the irony of this is I've met people who've lived in cities for years and have no idea how to navigate. And what's interesting is this actually means that there's a part of their brain that is involved in knowing where things are that they're not using. And if you, if you don't use it, you will lose it. And this, we know, has to do with cognitive power. And these machines that we're using they can, tr we can truly delegate a lot of the, the thinking that we used to do to them. And if you're watching the level of public discourse in America deteriorate, maybe it has a lot to do with the fact that we've delegated a lot of our thinking to these machines because people are really doing some crazy stuff and also not preparing and not thinking logically about how to, 
how to behave in a lot of ways and not thinking about the consequences of their actions. So I try and, and, and just focus with patients on that. Like, look, you got to think about how this is affecting your life and what really matters to you. And one of the great tragedies, I think, of modern life is that you've got all these families who, who come home at the end of the day and have nothing to do with one another because they're all immersed in their own technology. And that's mediated by the fact that, one, the light is very attractive and they want to look at it. And two, there's infinite connectivity. So they can see the world through something in the palm of their hand. You shut off that wireless you know, signal, you downregulate or change the screen settings, suddenly the phone's not that interesting. And that's when people start to actually engage with one another, which is what they really desperately want and desperately need right now. Yeah, one, one of the things uh, happening right now is this coronavirus. So how does this EMF and maybe some of these other environmental factors, how does it play into your immune system? Because I know there might be some connections between 5G and corona. Right. There's been a lot of rumblings about that. I've gotten some hate mail for my, um, my statements about this. But here's the thing about wireless radiation. Um, we know that it affects life. There are chapters in textbooks on how, I mean, there's textbooks on this. And there's chapters in those textbooks on the immune system in particular that were written and published before I was born. And, I mean, the data is very, very broad and deep. The people who tell you it doesn't matter haven't read it or they read it and they're like, I bet it's noise. But it's bizarre because you have all of these experiments showing an effect. So the question is, how big is the effect? How big of a deal is it really? And that is really tough to quantify. And in my opinion, the studies that need to be done have not been done. And this is a case of really, I think, the brokenness of our academic and scientific institutions where if you publish 100 papers, they can be terrible papers, but you can get tenure. And you could publish three of the most groundbreaking papers in your field <clears throat> and be ignored, or shall we say, even relegated to the you know, dustbin of history. Like a guy like Gilbert Lang. Gilbert Lang yeah. wrote some amazing papers on how cells really work, and it has since been confirmed. And nobody's heard of Gilbert Lang. I never learned about him, even though I majored in biology. He should have been in the, his name should have been like on the syllabus, like the one pager of what we we're going to cover in a year. And it's not. And you get all this other garbage that's really not comparatively that important, right? Like everyone knows who Watson and Crick are. And it's not that they're not important. But guess what? There's a lot of other things that matter and people ought to know about that's really being ignored by the powers that be in academia because it's a really inconvenient set of truths that threatens their dogma and threatens their research funding and threatens the modern medical paradigm. And because of that, it's never going to sort of see the light of day except in cases like this where we're talking about not what some, you know, overpaid pencil pushing, paper shuffling, you know, desk flying moron in an academic think tank or institute thinks, but what actually works for patients. And the real proof of the pudding for, you know, EMF, whether or not microwaves and radio waves affect life, is to, to try the pudding. You know, get away from all this stuff for a week or two weeks and see how differently you feel. And I'm amazed by how, I mean, I'm blown away when I talk to patients. I'll ask them, you know, have you gone on a camping trip in the last, 
you know, several years. And they'll say, yeah, you know what? I went out to like Nevada on a, on a RV trip and I haven't felt that good, haven't felt as good or nearly as good since then. And you think, my gosh, you know, you were out in the sunlight, you were relaxed in nature. That's how good you can be just by changing your light environment. Because most people, when they go on vacation, don't eat particularly well. Um, in fact, if anything, they indulge. And so that's where, that's one thing I point out to patients, one thing I ask them. So do you have any patients or maybe, you know, other specific examples of somebody who does get out of EMF, you know, get it out of their life, and then, you know, what happens to them? Yeah, many. Um, and it's sort of, and that's, the thing is how all this works is really, it's all interconnected. And so it's very hard to isolate variables. And that's what makes it tough for people. Like, let's say that I take 100 people and I get them all to give up uh, gluten. And, you know, some percentage of them respond with an improvement in X, Y, or Z. And, you know, it's some laundry list of 20 different things that improve for those people, right? I can do that very easily. But if I start changing people's light environment, right, I often don't see that big of a difference with certain things, right? Um, the the most consistent thing I hear from people, because it's also the easiest thing for me to get them to do, is that their sleep improves when they unplug their Wi-Fi router at night and put their phone on airplane mode. That is a very consistent finding, and it isn't just limited to the quality and the depth of their sleep, but to what we call parasomnias, things like nightmares or night terrors or whatever. And this goes back, I think, to the fact that these radio and microwave radiations are sensed by the brain as a form of stress. And so when you pass, I mean, when you pass stress or when you create a stress in, in an animal or a person's life, it often manifests as a, a nightmare, right? I mean, how many times have your nightmares been some person you were afraid of, some thing you were afraid of happening to you that was a very real possibility? Um, so that's, those are the most consistent things I see. And then with, you know, I, I talk a lot about visible light and the effects of fake light at night, you know, brightly lit screens and so on and so forth. The, I mean, I very consistently see people who either start wearing blue blockers or who change the color temperature of the screen, like their phone or their laptop or whatever, so that it's more red and not as blue and green. Those people almost always report that their sleep has improved. And if, it, if they don't, it's a matter of figuring out what, what else in their environment is throwing that off. Okay. So one of the things you talk about is cold exposure. And I, we probably disagree on this a little bit, but I know that that's kind of a stressful thing, but you, you've spoken pretty highly of it. So how do people get into that? What do you like about it? Sure. So the number one thing that I always, that I start with people with cold exposure is I consider it a tool. And really I look at everything I tell people to do and to use as a tool. And you have to ask yourself if using that tool is worth it to you, right? Um, I became interested in the effects of cold on life as part of this whole sort of EMF research kick that I went on because one of the only docs I found who was talking about EMF, Jack Cruz, really swore by the benefits of cold therapy. And the more I looked into it, the more I thought that it was a very promising option for people. And by instinct, I guess I'll say, I like to look for solutions for my patients that don't require a lot of money and, you know, or that are really valuable pound for pound. Uh, 
I don't think there's anywhere on my site or in my social media that I ever advocate for a supplement or a pill or a multi-level product or whatever. Uh, but I am an affiliate for a number of blue block, two blue blockers companies, um, Blue Blocks and Raw Optics, and a phototherapy um, device. Uh, well, I guess they're technically not that. They're a red light company called uh, EMR Tech. And the reason is that pound for pound, these things are really... I mean, amazingly valuable because they are, they're so durable and you can get such an amazing benefit out of them for such long periods of time. The cold is just an extension of that. And the cold is really, in nature, always accompanies winter and a shorter day. And the cold is a stress that pushes life to change its metabolism. And it really can change everything about life. So if you look at the effects of cold exposure on the microbiome. It changes your microbiome. So I meet all these people who are spending all this money on these expensive, fancy designer probiotics, and I'm like, have you tried cold? You know, Because for all we know, that's going to work better for them than the probiotic. Uh, and then it's really part of the it's, – it's a signal to your metabolism that it's winter, and you need to burn fat and energy in order to produce uh, heat inside of your body. And – one of the things that you know a lot of people are struggling with today is maintaining insulin sensitivity, maintaining their metabolic health, maintaining their metabolism. Well, cold is a really powerful stressor that, that pushes the body to fix its metabolism. And this is how bears and other hibernating mammals at high latitudes basically fix their metabolism in the winter and then they get fat and diabetic in the summer. When I read the literature on bears and, and hibernating mammalian physiology, I realized that diabetes and obesity, two of the biggest problems that I see in my practice, are really just adaptations of mammals at high latitudes to survive periods of incredible scarcity, specifically the winter. We're a little bit different because we're technically more tropical adapted mammals, uh, but the cold still has this powerful effect on our metabolisms, and it's basically like... I look at people who are trying to fix their metabolic health who aren't using cold. It's like you're leaving money on the table. All you got to do in a place like Minnesota or Maine or whatever, some northern place, is you just got to go outside in a little bit less than you might want to be dressed in. And you know, if you really want to take it seriously, you can go, you know, jump in uh, in really freezing cold water. And there's a lot of other things I, I teach people about the effects of changing their circadian, their circannual environment in my online course, Polar Bear Fitness, which people can find at polarbear.fitness. And I basically explain to them how lighting and how life changes through the year using polar bears as an example. And um, to this day, it's the simplest, most um, straightforward strategy that I've, that I've put together for people. Um, that it's like two or th it's two, two hours and change of video, um, plus like a 50 something page PDF. And it's just like the down and dirty quick, here's how you live a circadian and circannual life, which I increasingly think is important for people, uh, no matter what they're eating, no matter what their exercise is. So be because it's, you know, a stressor, are there certain people who shouldn't do it? Oh, 100%. Yeah, and this is really important. So I, I, it's a tool, and it's not for everybody. And a lot of people who come into my office are not well enough to try cold exposure. And I go over uh, in the course, you know, absolute contraindications and reasons not to use the cold, which very briefly are any illness that's exacerbated by the cold. People who get really severe rainouts, 
people who have cold-induced urticaria, people who have cold-induced, believe it or not, there's cold-induced anaphylaxis, oh. uh, cold-induced asthma. Any of these things are an absolute no-no or you know you shouldn't try it until you've cleared it with your doctor. But most people know what they can handle when it comes to the cold. And then people who have problems with their thyroid, their adrenal axis, those two organs need to be working really well in order for people to tolerate cold exposure. That's just basic physiology. And so if you take somebody who's really super stressed out and freaked out and 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 chronically ill and frail and you try and put them in the cold, it's just not going to go well. Um, they may be able to tolerate it. They may see some therapeutic benefit. But at the end of the day, you know, you really want to fix the simple things about somebody's environment, their mindset, their uh, their lifestyle, their diet before you jump into that. Uh, but once you do jump into that, it is a really powerful tool um, specifically for uh, for pain, for sleep. And I'm I'm interested in, and I haven't yet seen a lot of. Uh, I'm interested in trying to use it in people who are who are working on or trying to work through autoimmune or allergic diseases because I think that it's possible that cold may be one of the key stressors that rewires the immune system. But I haven't yet I haven't yet had any patients take me up on on that. Um, that's that's and I'm really pumped. I'm really pumped to have some people who are willing to like kick the tires on that theory because, you know, if if we can get people better with cold exposure, it's really important. It's a really big deal. I mean, even if it's a small benefit, it could have a very important impact on people's lives because it's so much cheaper than all the other stuff that people are getting sold out there. Yeah. So we only have, I don't know, about 10 minutes left. Are there, sure. are there other things, you know, in the environment that uh, people should be maybe paying attention to that they could get some results from? Oh, 100%. Yeah, I mean, people need to take their environment in a very comprehensive way. There's no aspect of the environment that does not touch human health. It's just that it's hard to figure out which things are problems for you and what to do about them. And, you know, that's where I you know, it's important to work with a practitioner who's got, um, who's got some background in understanding the environment because it can be very tough to chase down the things that are actually bothering you. It can take some time. It can take some sort of detective work, um, but it's definitely worth it because it saves you just the sort of, um, you know, people who end up in the, in the system of conventional medicine where they're just putting drugs on top of diseases to cover them up, Part of my disillusionment with conventional medicine is that I always see those people hit the wall, the drugs stop working, the disease gets out of control, and at the end of their life, I'm the guy there trying to fix things, trying to trying to help them, and you know the subspecialists who put them on all this stuff are sort of saying like, well, this is not you know my problem anymore. This, there's nothing more for me to do, and you know I. I don't want people to get to that point. I want them to change their diets and their lifestyles uh, in order to achieve complete and holistic health and wellness. And not, I, I believe very strongly what Hippocrates said. He said the greatest medicine of all is teaching people how not to need it. That's what I do. Nice. So, I mean, off the top of your head, can you think of any of these environmental things that maybe people could look into? Other than EMF and other than you know artificial light, uh, air pollution is a huge deal that's underappreciated by people, and they don't realize how much it affects life on planet Earth. Uh, like, for example, a lack of UV light has been linked to higher rates of uh, myopia 
in children. And so if your kids aren't outside enough and there, or there's too much cloud cover or too much air pollution outside, they don't get any UV light and they all need glasses. This is why so many kids who live indoors and are constantly on, on these devices are needing more and more glasses. Um, uh, water quality is a huge deal. Uh, there's tons of stuff that's gotten into U.S. municipal water systems that absolutely you need to get rid of in your life. I talk about this in, in my, my program, and I tell people to drink spring water because I don't want them to lose the mineral content of spring water. That's very important. Um, but I also don't want them to be exposed to the, the garbage that's ended up in municipal water systems because uh, they're allowed to have pretty high levels of different things that I think are toxic that will accumulate over time. And uh, those are my top two other things. Uh, but, but it's really, it's practically anything. This is great information, man. You mentioned Polar Bear Fitness. What other things do you do? You know, how can people get access to you and, and what you offer? Sure. I see patients at Anders Wellness Consulting in Colonial Heights, Virginia. I'm licensed in several different states, so you can contact the office to see if I can offer telemedicine to you wherever you are. And, uh, you know, it's always best for people to come and see me in Virginia because it just works better. And then I do a lot of phone follow-ups with people who have to drive a long way. And uh, otherwise, I'm on social media as much as I can stand it. Um, <laughs> I try and put out information that's positive and that helps people to understand what's happening to their health and how to get better. And I'm increasingly making videos on YouTube and um, going live on Facebook to try and help people really get to why um, they're sick. And really my, my goal and all that stuff is to teach people how not to need medicine. And so people who follow me, what I'm trying to do with all my stuff, I'm trying to teach you all the different things in your environment that matter, all the different things that you can do for yourself that will get you the benefit that you need to live the life that you want. That's great. So before we finish, what are your, uh, top treatments both to prevent yourself from getting coronavirus? And if you get it, what should you do? That is such a tough question. And the toughness of that question comes from the fact that I tell my patients that they're all special snowflakes and they all fall and they all melt in their own special way. <laughs> and I'm not being facetious. They really are. Um, you know, you give two people the same different, same treatment. One of them gets a great outcome. One of them gets a bad outcome. It's very hard to know. And so, you know, if people come to see me as a patient in the outpatient setting, I would tell them that high dose IV vitamin C early in the course could have a radical impact on their prognosis. And if you want the data on that, you need to look up a guy named Frederick Klenner who did, uh, who used uh, vitamin C to treat viral pneumonia many times, uh, innumerable times, really in the 19, I think, 50s and 60s and 70s. He and a bunch of other pioneers, their work was ignored because it didn't make anybody any money. Uh, and then um, I, think, I think some people are going to get a really significant benefit from ozone. Um, Rob Rowan is an MD out in California who went to Sierra Leone to treat, uh, to treat Ebola. I mean, the guy is a real cowboy with real, I mean, chutzpah for going to Africa to treat a life-threatening hemorrhagic viral fever. And he reported great results with ozone. So, you know, I, I'm really curious to see what he does. And I'm really looking forward to his report of what happened with his patients at his clinic after that. Uh, but those are both things that you can only get through a practitioner. Um, people who I know who, you know, my family, my friends, I say, if you get sick with it, high dose oral vitamin C can help, help you compensate and help you, um, help you 
help your immune system kill the virus. There's a lot of, of data, I believe, that was generated over the last several decades on the role of oral vitamin C in, in treating, preventing, ameliorating symptoms of, of viral infections. Uh, and then, you know, most of the rest of it is just sort of the bread and butter advice I give to people. Keep your immune system healthy. Don't get stressed out. Um, exercise. Have a good cardiovascular performance and fitness. If anything, that's going to be the make or break point right now based on what I've read because it's really a disease that in its most malignant form challenges the lungs to oxygenate the body. And the more capacity you have to tolerate low oxygen tensions, which is really about how healthy your mitochondria are and what your mitochondrial density is, uh, the better off you're going to do. And that's, that's the long and the, the short of it. And I, I caution people against taking any or doing any of the things people are telling them to do for like long, long periods of time. I tell people it's like you're gearing up for a gunfight. Don't use your ammo until you are in the fight. Yeah. What do you think of the hydroxy uh, chloroquine and, and the azithromycin? I hear great things and I'm hopeful. Uh, I have no firsthand experience with it because we have no cases here. Uh, but some people I know who are in New York are using it and think that it is excellent. And so I trust their uh, opinions. And obviously the the published literature on it so far is very positive. I also heard uh, Losartan, the blood pressure med, could actually be helpful. Have you heard anything about yeah, that? Yeah. And I've heard nicotine too. But here's the thing. The angiotensin, uh, the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system is very complicated. And... You know, people are saying, oh, X or Y or Z will treat it, so we should prescribe it. And other people are saying, no, if you use it, it will upregulate the receptor and that will make it worse. And the real bottom line is, I don't think anybody knows. And I'm really looking forward to people actually coming out with some data. And I think what you're going to see in that is that certain people are going to have a certain, you know, biochemical balance where some of them have more of this receptor or that receptor, and some of it will be genetic and some of it will be epigenetic. And for some of them, this remedy or that remedy will work, and for others, it won't. Uh, and that's kind of the the breaks. All right. I think the real, the real make or break thing for people is really going to be um, how healthy they are at baseline and then where they are in the world. And the reason I say where they are in the world is that you know, a lot of us are concerned about the rollout of 5G and how it may have affected our immune systems and our bodies and it compounding problems with this virus. We cannot disentangle its effects from the population density of a place like New York City or air pollution or whatever. But at the end of the day, you know, we're ramping up. We've controlled our air pollution. Our water pollution is not that different than it was 10 or 20 years ago. But EMF are something that are, are increasingly increasing in levels and intensities and the, the varieties are, are increasing and no one has quantified how much this is going to affect human health. And those of us who pay attention to it really think it's a big deal. Yeah. Well, that's just some awesome information. Um, before we wrap up, anything else you want to cover? No, thanks for having me on. Yeah, man. Dr. Leland Stillman. Great info. So thanks so much. Great. Thanks for having me. Really loved this interview with Dr. Stoneman. I think we could probably talk all day about some of the topics he addressed at the beginning about, you know, insurance. I may reach out to him uh, for another episode where we delve into what is going on behind the scenes in medicine. So if you'd be interested in that kind of thing, let me know. 
Uh, I will have all the links he discussed in the show notes, including the video he did on YouTube about his journey from EMF skeptic to believer. Now, as for the announcement, the podcast will be taking a two-week break. So Brian's mom probably has COVID and is not doing too well. Uh, So he's been understandably you know, attending to family matters at this time. Not only that, you know, with COVID dominating the news, the interest in joint formulas and cut protocols is really at an all-time low. Uh, I also think most people are tired of hearing about COVID and, you know, they're just kind of hunkering down with, with family and friends. So the break should not take longer than two weeks. You know, I have interviews lined up and shows written that are really ready to go. But depending on Brian's situation, we're going to just play things by ear. So please pray for Brian and his mom if that is your way or send him good vibes or whatnot. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. I will talk to you all in a couple weeks. Be well. (laughs) 